Well, good morning. If uh, you have not gone already, kids, K through fifth grade, you can be dismissed to go uh, downstairs for kids' worship. And the rest of us, we can open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 2. And that'll be page 837 on our Blue Pew Bible if you want to follow along on this Super Bowl Sunday. And I would be remiss if I did not point out that the uh, man who is running the slides this morning uh, is Super Bowl champion Joe Morris from the New York Football Giants. Who scored a touchdown in that Super Bowl, if I, I wasn't alive, so I don't... Uh, um, <laughs> I've seen some footage, I've seen some footage, Uh, but that's our little uh, Grace Church claim to fame, and it also shows nobody's too important to serve uh, at church. So, in spring 2016, a writer from the Huffington Post put out a poll question to her vast network of followers, and uh, she just put out a simple question. If you could say in one word, what you want most in life right now, what would that be? To her surprise, over 700 people responded basically immediately. And she digested all the answers and put out what the top five were. Here they are. Number one, happiness. Happiness, it's the most wanted and yet most elusive thing for many people. Just want to be happy. Two, money. Because, of course, more money will make everything easier, won't it? And and more money will make us happier. Number three, freedom. Freedom to pursue what we want and when we want it. Number four, peace. Specifically, a a peace of mind, a a clarity about our purpose in life and and what we're doing is actually accomplishing that purpose. If if, if I had to paraphrase that, it would be the desire to want to go to bed at night and actually fall asleep right away. And number five, joy. A life where we can actually say we enjoy it all. So what would you say if you were asked, give me one word that describes what you want most in life right now? This morning, we're going to continue in our sermon series in the book of Mark. We are um, over, we are one month in and we're finally on to chapter two, all right? So if that just gives you a little preview of how long this is going to be. Um, And just the first chapter, like, it's almost too much to even try and recap it. Like, there's just too much that we saw, right? Needless to say, Mark is just speeding along so quickly in this story, jam-packing it with truth for us that is kind of simultaneously convicting and assuring. You know what I mean by that? Like, it's it's something only the Bible can seem to do. It, It could simultaneously convict you and then give you assurance. It's this double-edged sword as it describes itself. And as we read it, the Holy Spirit illuminates its meanings in ways that wound us in order to restore us. Like a master surgeon, it hurts in order to heal. 
And in the blur of scenes we've dug into, there's just kind of one thing that's so far standing in the spotlight. Like everything else is a blur, and there's just one thing that's just clear, and it's this man named Jesus. And he's doing things in ways that people wouldn't expect. He's, he commands authority in the way he preaches and heals, but he has not come to overtake anything or anyone. It's this kind of paradox, and what happens is that people are just amazed by him. Like, if not just a little confused by him, they, they see what's happening, but they can't just nail him down. They can't quite figure him out, which in turn, of course, just makes him all the more fascinating. And so as we venture into ch- chapter 2, we will now see the first indication of opposition in Mark's gospel. You see, not everyone likes Jesus. Far from it. And we're going to see that and why in the passage today. But most importantly, we're going to see what do we need most in life right now. We'll be covering verses 1 to 12 this morning, but we're going to start with verses 1 through 5. Follow along. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. This passage, it's the first of five straight controversial episodes between Jesus and the scribes that Mark's going to stack back to back in Mark 2 and the beginning of Mark 3. And this, this first episode breaks into three parts. First, Jesus and the paralytic. Jesus and the paralytic. So if you recall from last week, Jesus had previously left this town called Capernaum because he wanted to preach at other towns around in Galilee. Um, The only thing we were told about that entire trip was that episode with the leper that we looked at last week. And now, after some days, Mark says, he's back. He's back at this base of operations, back in Capernaum, back at the home of Simon Peter. And when he first departed here, do you remember he left the crowds high and dry? The, the whole city, we were told, was, was coming to him uh, with illnesses and people possessed by demons. And, and, and then he just left. And so I imagine that now that he's back in town, it didn't take too long for word to get back out. Jesus is back. Okay, so now the people descend upon the house again. And it's packed full, like standing room only, no more space to get in. Okay, if you're somebody who gets claustrophobic, this is not the place for you. Right? It looked like evening rush hour on a New Jersey transit train. All right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Just shoulder to shoulder, um, wishing the person next to you popped the breath mint, and then realizing uh, that he or she is probably thinking the same about you. And, and it's just, you're just packed in there. And, and Jesus, this is the scene that he is preaching the word to them. Did, did you catch that? He's not healing He's not doing exorcisms, which is what drew the crowds in the first place, right? And now it caused them to come back. We want more miracles. We want to see more power. That was amazing. And so they come back for it. But the reason he left Capernaum is that so he could preach. Jesus' primary commitment was to proclamation. And so now he comes home and the crowds return and they want to see more. Man, that was awesome. Do it again. 
but he makes it a point to be preaching when they come. To proclaim the good news of forgiveness that comes through repentance. And this is the setting for these four men who approach the house carrying a paralytic man on a mat. We're never told in Mark that it's a man, but we're told in the other Gospels that it was, it was a full-grown man who had paralysis probably for his entire life. And, and I, you can kind of imagine what happened here. Right, the last time they heard that there was a man healing people of all kinds of diseases, they started to get excited, and they get wind of it. And they start talking about how are we going to get our friend healed. But then, almost as fast as they hear about Jesus, they hear that he left. He's already out of town. They lost their chance to get their friend healed. It probably didn't feel very good for them. And now some days pass, and they hear he's back. They're not going to miss it this time. Okay, so they get together, they decide, okay, we're going to carry our friend who is paralyzed to Jesus. Anticipation's building, excitement is growing, they get him on a mat, they carry him to Simon's house. Think of the sinking feeling they get when they round the corner and they see the house and they can't even get in the door. Everybody else has already beaten them to it. You can't even get in the door. Like, the, just the crowds much just deflated them. And as I'm reading this, I just, we in Bergen County, we, we can empathize with this. Not everybody in the world can. We can. Okay? We can understand frustration that is brought on by seeing crowds. Everything's packed in North Jersey. Always. The roads are packed, the malls are packed, the movie theaters, the stadiums, the restaurants, okay? We are in one of the densest counties in the densest states in the country. There are people everywhere. One of the reasons I love going to visit Rochelle's family in Wisconsin, it's not the only reason, but one <laughs> of the reasons is there's just flat out less people. Like, that might sound strange coming from a pastor, like, yes, I love people, but I admit it, I love, at times, getting away from all the people. When, when our uh, oldest was just beginning to talk, he was maybe around two years old, we were out in Wisconsin just driving in daylight, uh, he's, he's sitting in the back seat, and he, you know, he's barely stringing words together, he just goes, Mom, Dad, no, no beep beeps. Like, like, like when even he can understand, like, something's different about this place. You know you're not in New Jersey anymore. And we were just like, yes, son, praise God for that. All right? No beepies. <laughs> well, these four men come to the house. They're amped up. They got their second chance. And now there's no way in. But they will not be denied. They cannot risk Jesus just leaving town again. Like, we know he's a flight risk. We're this close. He's in that house. We have to make this happen. And so uh, the homes in Capernaum in the first century, um, some of which the foundations are still remaining, all had outdoor staircases to a flat rooftop. And the roofs were made of wooden beams that were then cross-laid with branches and packed in with a thick layer of grass, mud, and clay. So that meant that they were strong enough to walk on but they also consisted of material that could be dug through. This is the level of determination, the, the, the level of commitment they have for their friend, the level of their faith that Jesus can heal this man. And so they walk up. I imagine they lay the mat down, they're on the roof, and they begin to dig. 
So here's where I wish Mark just provided a little more detail. Like, I want to know how long this took. I want to know when people inside the house start realizing um, there's somebody digging a hole in the roof. I want to know if Peter or his mom were running out the staircase trying to be like, no, you're, you're digging a hole in my roof. I wonder if they had to have two guys play bodyguard while two just dug as fast as they could. I want to know what Jesus thought when he was preaching. Here's the thing. When they're digging through this material, this means that those in the house, including Jesus, would have been showered with dirt and sticks coming from above. Like, I don't know about you. I just don't think I would have responded that well to that. Like, I just can't. I don't know. I, don't know. I hope I never have to figure out. I just don't know that I can just kind of keep going unhindered. Like, I imagine at some point, you're, like, that's just going to be a little strange. And they're not just looking for a big enough hole to see through. They need a big enough hole in this roof to lay a grown man down on a mat. But they do it. However they do it, however long it took, they did it. And they let him down, and we read, Jesus saw their faith. There, meaning probably both the men who uh, carried him and the paralytic himself. And then he says something that, like, nobody saw coming. Like, that's just the theme again and again, Mark, right? Just paradox and irony. Like, nobody thought this is what Jesus would say. It's a dramatic scene. This man's uh, in front of him. People are all around. There's a hole in the roof, four sets of eyes looking down. And Jesus says, sons, son, your sins are forgiven. What? Your, your sins are forgiven? We aren't told the immediate response from the friends or the man on the map. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that they would have thought, um, hey, thanks for that, Jesus. But I have a bigger need here. I have a more immediate need. I'm, I'm paralyzed. He didn't come for forgiveness. He came so that Jesus can help him walk again. I have an immediate need that you can address. Healing is what you do. Healing is what I want most. But powerfully, Jesus puts on display for this man and for all who are watching that paralysis is not his biggest need right now. Jesus knew what the man needed was not what he thought he wanted most. Now, he doesn't disregard the immediate need or think it's unimportant, as we'll see in just a little bit, but he makes it clear, listen, you have a deeper problem than paralysis. Because I'm sure this man was dominated by the mentality every day of just, if I could just walk, I'd be set. That's what I need most. But Jesus knew that if he did just give this man what he wanted, if he did just heal him and send him on his way, eventually this man would realize for himself that that wasn't true. That he wouldn't be set. That walking wasn't what he needed most. Yeah, the euphoria would be great for a while, but it wouldn't last. And sooner or later he would come to find that he still needs something else. We need to slow down here, right? There, there are those of us in this room, maybe most of us, who are currently dominated by a similar mentality. We have that one thing right now in life 
that we feel like we need most. And if Jesus would just give it to us, everything will be set. It's the only thing I want. Jesus, if you just heal this body or the body of a loved one, then everything would be fine. Jesus, if you just provided this job with the salary that comes with it or, or with this raise, then I'd be set. Jesus if, if, Jesus, if you would just allow me to get into this school, allow me to get into this program, then I'll be golden. That's all I want. Jesus, if you would just allow this relationship to work out or provide a relationship that I have so longed for, then life will be good. It all comes down to, Jesus, if you love me and can do these things, why won't you? Why aren't you? Whatever it is in this world that we think we want most right now, Jesus knows it's not our biggest need. He knows the euphoria of getting what we think we want most would last for only a short while until we realize that's actually not what we needed most. It doesn't mean he disregards our desires. It doesn't mean he has no care for our prayers. It doesn't mean that those things don't matter or that we shouldn't want them or pray for them. But it means that when our deepest sense of joy and our deepest sense of identity is wrapped up in that one worldly thing, it can never deliver even if we get it. Regardless of what we think we want most, the only thing in the world we need is a Savior. What we need most is forgiveness, as he gave the paralytic, because the biggest problem in this world isn't a lack of money. And it's not bad health. And it's not unhealthy or a lack of relationships. It's sin. The world is broken because of sin. It's fallen, and it's fractured, and it's, and, and it's all around us. And, and acting like what we want in this world will be all that we need is like saying that a Band-Aid is enough to cover a bullet wound. What we need most in this world is forgiveness. And that is hard because it's something we can't do ourselves. It needs to be given to us. And here's Jesus declaring it to be so to this paralytic man. Let's keep going. Matthew 2, 6 through 9. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that, I'm going to save verse 10 for later, 6 through 9. All right, we saw Jesus and the paralytic, and now, second, it's Jesus and the scribes. And again, here's our first indication of opposition in Mark's gospel, right? That the first time we are cued into the fact that, wait a minute, not everyone was impressed with Jesus. Not everyone liked him or what he was doing or what he was teaching. 
And the scribes are the ones, if you remember, they had their authority surpassed by Jesus, right? When he first began to teach and preach in the synagogue, the people were amazed. Why? Because this guy's authority seems to be bigger than even the scribes. He seems to have more authority than even the scribes, and that is a massive statement, right? Because the scribes were the religious leaders of the day, and they had total command over the Jewish population in these local towns. All right, your scribe was your teacher, your rabbi, your lawyer, your judge, and your jury. He did it all. Complete control. And so it's no wonder that here we see it's them who begin to have issues with Jesus. And it begins with what Jesus claims to be able to do. They go, wait, what did he just say? Did he just say your sins are forgiven? And and here is where Mark's uh, just major theme of irony clashing is seen so well. The scribes, in their indignation, they're partially right. Only God can forgive sin. Because sin is first and foremost rebellion against him. It's it's only the one sinned against that can offer forgiveness. Okay, so Tim Keller offers uh, just a helpful illustration to kind of show this point. Let's say we had three guys up here. We had um, Bill, we had Ryan, and we had Joe. And they're just hanging out. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Ryan just throws a haymaker on Joe. Just blindsides him, knocks him down. Like Joe's on the ground, just bleeding, like stunned, doesn't know what's happening. Let's say Bill, the third guy who's there, just kind of walks up to Ryan and goes, Hey, Ryan, so I want to let you know you're forgiven for punching Joe. So I want to let you know that. Like, I think Joe would have an issue with this, right? Like, if we were all just watching that, you know, we'd say, We'd go, Whoa, 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 whoa. Bill can't do that. Joe has to, is the only one who could, who could offer forgiveness to Ryan. Joe is the one who was sinned against. He's the one on the ground bleeding his face off. And in the same way, the scribes are sitting here and they're going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Only God can grant forgiveness. Because it's first and foremost God who is sinned against. And they're right. But by saying this, Jesus is claiming that he is the one sinned against. And there's the irony. The scribes were right, but at the same time, they were so wrong. They rightly know that only God can forgive sin, but they do not rightly see Jesus as God. So what's the charge? Blasphemy. Interestingly, this is the very charge that the Pharisees will bring to the high priest and to the Roman governor a few years later as to why Jesus should be crucified. Blasphemy. Claiming to be God is the highest offense and punishable by death. And Jesus will eventually be killed for being exactly who he claimed to be. Irony. Well, Jesus hears what they are thinking. Don't miss that, right? Another subtle way that he shows he's divine. He knows their inner thoughts, and he calls them out on it. Two questions. Hey, why are you questioning these things in your hearts? And then second, which is easier? To heal this man of his paralysis or to forgive his sins? Okay, to be fair to the scribes, that's a tough question, right? Like, I hear that question, I'm like, uh, they're both pretty hard, all right? I, like, uh, I'm not sure, is this a trick question, right? But, but what's easier? 
Jesus implies that forgiving sin is more difficult for him than healing paralysis. Do you know why? The scribes, they wouldn't get it when they hear it. His own disciples, in fact, don't even get it at this point. But do do you know why? Because healing the man's paralysis will require Jesus to lay down his power. But forgiving his sins will require Jesus to lay down his life. Forgiveness of sins can only be granted if there is a shedding of blood, his blood. So forgiving sin is far more difficult. It's far more costly because even if this man gets up and walks again, he's eventually going to die anyway of something else. But if this man is forgiven of his sin, he will never taste spiritual death. And that leads to our last point. Let's read Matthew 2, now 10 through 12. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Third, Jesus and the resurrection. So we get to the end of the story to find that Jesus actually does end up healing this paralytic of his paralysis. He says simply, stand up, carry this bed that has been carrying you for however long, probably your entire life, and go home. I love that last part. Go home. And I was trying to figure out why I like that part, and I come to think of it that this is the first time in his life that a man with paralysis can just go home on his own. The first time he can say, yeah, I want to go home and go. He doesn't need somebody else. He doesn't need somebody to be carried. He doesn't need a mat to be put on. He can go home. Go return where you came from and show your transformation. Go home a restored, redeemed, healed man. Go home. So why did Jesus heal him in the end? If Jesus knew his deepest need was the forgiveness of sins and he granted that to him, why did then he also heal him physically? Two reasons. One is clearly seen, I think the other one maybe not as much. First, the one that is clear, it's a proof of his authority. He says, just so that you might know that I have the authority I claim, I'm just going to go ahead and resurrect him too. I'm going to resurrect him on his feet too. So get up, buddy, go on home. Just like that, like it was nothing. That the physical healing was proof that Jesus has the authority he claims to grant forgiveness, a a divine authority. So he uses a physical healing that points to spiritual power. And Jesus here referred to himself as the Son of Man. It was a common thing for him to do. 81 times across the gospel, Jesus calls himself this, 12 of which in the gospel of Mark alone. And so we'll be able to keep seeing this term and flesh out why he's using it later in the book. But why didn't he just come out right and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. Wouldn't that have been a little clearer? Why use the obscure phrase, Son of Man? 
This term is used in the Old Testament, and most notably, it's in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where it's worth us seeing the context. So it's going to be up on the screen behind me. This is the prophet Daniel talking. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's power. But Jesus didn't outright say he's the Messiah because the Jewish people at the time had a different view of their Messiah. They, they were expecting a Messiah, but they were expecting a war leader. They were expecting someone to come in and, and rally the troops and overthrow the Roman Empire and liberate the Druze politically. They wanted William Wallace, all right? Jesus did not come to overtake the world. He, cl- he came to lay down his life and in turn turn the world upside down. Jesus doesn't commence his kingdom by taking lives, but by giving his the Son of Man came to deploy, uh, deploy his authority, first to suffer, and then go to glory. And by showing his power over paralysis, just like that, it serves as proof to the claims of his authority over sin, right? He uses the seen to prove the unseen. That much is clear. But there's a second reason that he healed him, and I don't think it's as easily seen, but it's just as vital. He healed the man to give a picture of true resurrection. While Jesus came primarily to save sinners, he also did all these physical healings that we've already seen and we're going to continue to see. And it was proof, but it wasn't just for the sake of proof. It was to provide a picture of eternal bodily resurrection. The most significant miracle in the history of the world, surely the most significant one in the Bible, is when God raised Jesus from the dead after he went to the cross. Jesus really died. He he stopped breathing. His heart stopped beating. He had to die in order to pay for the sins of the world. And then three days later, he's alive. Physically alive. The Father resurrected the Son from the dead, and on one hand, yes, it served as proof that Jesus really was who he said he was, but it's not all it was. It wasn't just so Jesus could come out and go, see, told you so. Telling you for three years now. It's not wrong to say that Jesus uh, healed people and was raised from the dead to give proof for who he is, but if left alone, I think it's incomplete. Christ's resurrection was done to usher in a new eternal kingdom where all of God's people will have resurrected bodies. A kingdom that has been consummated in Christ, begun in Christ, and will not yet fully be realized until his second coming. But on that final day, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ will be given new, imperishable bodies in the flesh, and they will last for all of eternity, and there will be no sin, and there will be no brokenness, there will be no anything to tear those bodies down. 
And so when Jesus healed this man, when he said, stand up and walk, he was providing a picture into the kingdom of God. A glimpse into restored bodies that will never perish. Just a glimpse. But it's one that connects the spiritual and the physical that will be reunited in glory. This church is where we place our hope. That a day is coming where we will have bodies that will not fail, that will not suffer, that will not feel emotional pain or physical decay or spiritual doubt, and it will last for eternity. We so often forget this in the here and now, but, but, but the forgiveness of sins by the grace of God is the Holy Spirit's down payment. It's his guarantee that one day this will be true for you in totality. In Christ, right now, you are completely restored and deemed righteous spiritually. You are perfectly justified in his eyes. When he sees you, he sees Jesus right now spiritually. And on that final day, it will be true for you physically and emotionally as well with a resurrected body. This is the basis for our hope. Now, does this passage mean that Jesus will physically heal everyone on earth who's truly a Christian? If you just have enough faith, it means that he'll, he'll handle your paralysis, figuratively speaking? Of course not. Listen, we pray for healing all the time. And many times, God's answer to those prayers is no. And we don't always know why. But we do know it's not because he doesn't love us. It can't be because he doesn't love us, because he sent his son to die for us. So unless Jesus returns while we are living, all Christians will physically die eventually, right? This forgiven man who, who healed and he walked home, eventually he's going to die of something else. He's not still living, I promise. And eventually there will be a time when someone's prayer for healing over my life is not answered. Whether that happens next week or that happens when I'm 95, it will never offset or change the fact that my sins have been forgiven through Christ and that I stand justified before God and one day I will join Jesus in a bodily resurrection to take part in the eternal, perfect kingdom of God. In Christ, we receive more than we expect and all that we need. So let me ask this again as we close. If you could say in one word, what do you want most in life right now? What would it be? Let me encourage you that anything but Christ will be just temporary. Sure, happiness would be nice, but that could change tomorrow with a phone call for all of us. More money would be helpful, but it won't pay off our deepest debts. Freedom is a great gift, but will be found to be still in chains in the end. Peace will satisfy for now, but it will be overtaken by chaos down the road. And joy will quench us today, but we'll just be thirsting again next week. The only answer that will not fade is Christ. For with Christ, our delight will be in the Lord and can never be taken away. In Christ, we'll be richer than we could ever imagine. 
In Christ will be free forever from the snares of the enemy. In Christ will receive peace that goes beyond understanding. And in Christ, our joy will be made full forevermore. Turn to Christ. Abide in Christ. And then remain in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it so clearly tells us what we need most. And so, Father, while I I pray that as a church, even this Wednesday night as we pray corporately, that we would cling to prayers you say we do not have because we do not ask. I pray we would ask for those things in our lives right now that we do want relationally and physically and, and emotionally, Lord. But I pray that none of those things would be more dear or important to us than the grace you have given in your Son. Father, equip us to hold things of this world loosely for the sake of Christ. Equip us to see our deepest need is you at all times. Father, I pray for those in here who have not yet put their faith in you that by encountering your word today that you would do a supernatural transformational work in their heart to turn to you. And Father, we praise your name for how you've done that all across this room for many. And we pray that today would be a reminder that we ought to remain in you. For where else shall we go? Father, it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.